Billy Graham is kind of the Michael Jordan of evangelicalism. He seems to be the most successful in history, and everyone looks to him as like the gold standard of how to have a faithful life. Somehow that guy managed to preach to over 210 million people in 185 different countries around the world. You don't have to search too long to find somebody in your life whose, whose own heart has been impacted by words he has spoken. Sure, he might have had some stains on his life, but everyone looks to him, wants to be like him. Sadly, this last February, Billy Graham died and now gets to live in the presence of the Lord. But at that moment, Christian ministries all over the world were talking about him in print, on radio, online. I remember listening to one uh, radio program. They were marveling at his influence and just his simple faithfulness. And the host of the show, I can't remember who it was. I looked for a while and thought I was wasting my time in my sermon prep. So I moved on. But the host was just going, is there anybody who's been as faithful as Billy Graham? He's humble, but he was influential. And the host or the, the guest on the show, this wise woman, I don't, I wish I could find out who it was. She said, there's probably some unknown woman in India taking care of her family, loving her husband, serving her neighbors, using everything she has with what God's given her, who is more faithful than he was. And I think, thought, wow, what an encouraging statement. Not just to reassess my own understanding of, of what successful ministry is, but a reminder to all of us of what faithfulness is. When we think of success in ministry and what we're called to in this life, the reason why God has left us all here on this earth for the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. We often get discouraged and feel guilty when we think about the guy across town who has a much bigger church or that other guy in our own church who has people over for dinner every single day, it seems like, or that one gal who seems to invite two people to worship every week. We feel, we feel defeated, like, I'm not that good, I can't do that, when we compare fruit with other people. And so I want to encourage you guys today from Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus' great work in this world simply happens through little, tiny confessions of His true identity. He uses ordinary, simple people like you and me, who look to Him every single day of our lives to change this world. So before we get into the text, let's go to our Lord and ask that He would help us look to Him. Father, we we acknowledge right now, we confess that we are nobody. We are nothing. Not a word I speak, not a thought that anybody in this room thinks honors you or glorifies you or will be useful for your kingdom purposes unless your spirit comes to us right now, washes us clean and sets us up to be faithful. So would you do that, God? Open our eyes to gaze upon the beauty of our Savior that we would become like him. Amen. So our main idea today that we're going to explore from Matthew 16 is Jesus' mission turns on simple faith. I want to take that principle and apply it to the story that Matthew's been 
telling us so far in this very critical moment in his own ministry, in Jesus' ministry, and then encourage you that what Jesus applied to Peter applies to every one of us as well. Up through the first 15 chapters of the book of Matthew, we've seen Jesus all around the region of Galilee. He's going everywhere, talking with as many people as possible, putting on incredible displays of power and authority in his teaching and in his healing. He deliberately avoided going to Jerusalem. We all know he's going to end up there. On this side of history, we know what he's going for. But he slowly spends time in Galilee just to really hammer down who he is, what his identity is, revealing himself more and more with every encounter. But now in chapter 16, it's time to turn towards Jerusalem, adjust his mission with a laser-like focus towards Jerusalem and everything he wants to accomplish there. But before we can get to this main idea of everything turning on a simple confession of faith, Matthew sets up for us a bit of a contrast. All of this teaching, all of these miracles that he's done have kind of created two different followings. First, in verses 1 through 4, we'll see this blind skepticism of the religious elite. People who are following him just to mock him, just to try to trip him up. Jesus puts on incredible displays of power, and yet they don't see it. They don't see who he is. They're blind. And then we'll contrast them in verses 5 to 12 with the disciples. And, but surprisingly, we expect this great contrast between the faithfulness of the disciples and the skepticism of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but instead we're left with confused disciples. And then, so finally, we'll take that minor contrast into the main point in verses 13 to 20, where Jesus' entire purpose on earth gets focused into a bright beacon of simple faith. So let's go back to the text in verses, start in the text of verses 1 to 4 and begin the contrast of the crowds. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So here we're seeing the Pharisees and Sadducees now teaming up to come and confront Jesus. And this is rather remarkable. Remarkable. Remember back in chapter 15 when the, the Pharisees came all the way up from Jerusalem. They brought in the elite of the elite, the experts in the law, to finally put Jesus in his place. And yet they failed at their mission. And now they've brought the, Pharis- or the Sadducees up with them. Pharisees and Sadducees are enemies. They hate each other political and religious rivals who can't get along about anything except that they both want to be rid of Jesus. And so they team up together. And this time, instead of confronting him on his understanding of the law, they they seem to recognize that he has some prophetic authority. So they're going to test him there. Show us that God is with you by giving us a sign. You know, like Elijah when he called down fire from heaven. That really showed us that he is with God. 
But Jesus responds essentially saying, guys, I've done enough. I've showed you enough. What more do you want to see? And then he uses this this imagery of telling the weather by looking at the color of the sky at certain times of day. This seems strange to us because we turn on the weather channel or open our weather app to get the weather. But fairly common around the world in the ancient world, everybody knew that if the sky was red in the evening, that means as the sun's setting, the rays are coming through storm clouds and kind of dispersing in a red tint. So that means the storm clouds have already passed. But if it's red in the morning, the sun is rising through some storm clouds, and that means the storm is on its way. Any any person, any farmer, any traveler knows that. It's common sense. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees and Sadducees, you guys can do that simple thing. You know what's even more clear than that? All the signs I've given you already, like a two-by-four upside your head. You should have seen it. But they didn't. They're so incredibly blind. And it's not just ancient people who couldn't see properly. We see modern skeptics today with this same mockery of God. They think, well, I'm having a debate here. If God would just show up in this debate and say, it's time to stop. Here's all the answers you're looking for. Then I would believe. Or maybe if God out of nowhere just started speaking in an audible voice from heaven, Adam, it's God. You can believe in me. Oh, well, all right then. I'll follow. I get it. But God is already at work all over this world. You guys have seen it. You've put Him on display in so many ways. And if people can't see it, it's not because God hasn't been clear enough, but because you're blind. You don't see His glory shining everywhere. So instead of demanding that God cater to us, the right response is to admit, I'm blind, I can't see. Everyone's telling me all of this. You're trying to explain something to me, but I don't understand. Just beg God instead for mercy. Please, God, show me. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. I need help. And God, in His mercy, is so pleased to give that. And Jesus says, the only sign that He is going to give from this point on is the sign of Jonah. He explained this a couple chapters ago where Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights and then came out alive foretelling Jesus' own resurrection. If you can't see the resurrection as the best sign, the most clear sign that God is in control, you're not going to believe anything else. The resurrection is the greatest moment in history that nobody has been able to explain away. You get rid of that, you get rid of Christianity, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't need another sign. You need to see the beauty of that resurrection. Otherwise... As in verse 14, Jesus might leave you and depart from there. So here in our story, Jesus has spent enough time in Galilee. He's done. He's given so many signs, given too many opportunities for repentance, showed His patience so long, displaying His grace, His mercy, His power, His authority over and over and over. And He's going to move on. This is... A significant statement at this point in the story. 
Jesus is turning his ministry a different direction. This is a great turning point in the way Matthew tells this story. Everything is leading up to this moment. It's becoming clearer than ever who Jesus is. Now it's time to be on mission for salvation. But he's not going to do this alone. Yeah, he, he, he turned his back on the skeptics, but he's going to take with him his own confused disciples. So before the journey to Jerusalem begins, he wants to show us what faith in him looks like. So let's go to verse 5 and read through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves and the five for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So I said we're setting up a little bit of a contrast here between the blindness of the religious elite and the disciples. But as we read through this section, it kind of appears that Jesus is actually saying there's no difference between the two. The disciples seem just as blind as the Pharisees. What's going on? They're so confused. And this becomes apparent in this conversation about bread. They're going on their next step of their journey. Wherever Jesus goes, we'll follow. We should probably bring some bread along to be able to eat. And they forgot the bread. And it feels to them like Jesus is kind of rubbing it in. And he says, makes this passing comment to warn them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're thinking, yeah, I know we didn't get bread. We'll have to make some bread now. And now you're telling us not to use the starter dough from the Pharisees and Sadducees like they're going to poison us. What do you want us to do, Jesus? And so he rebukes them again. Oh, you of little faith, do you not yet perceive Remember last chapter, are you still yet without understanding? They appear just as blind as the Pharisees. And Jesus explains, guys, oh my goodness, do you not understand? I fed 5,000 people who didn't have bread. And another day, 4,000 people who had nothing to eat. If I was talking about bread, I can make bread appear out of nowhere. But... You guys are still so blind that you don't even realize that wasn't about bread. It was about me, guys. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who will sustain you. My teaching, my words will give you life. Oh, guys, now they get it. He's talking about teaching. Avoid the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Embrace, receive the teaching of Jesus. Now they're understanding Jesus was so patient with them, patient with their ignorance, merciful with their stubbornness. But this should make you wonder. I hope some of you are asking the question, 
Why in the world was Jesus so patient with them and gave the cold shoulder to the Pharisees and Sadducees? They both seemed to be completely stupefied by his identity. Well, notice what Jesus calls the disciples in verse 8. I think this is the key. Who does he say they are? He calls them, you of little faith. Usually I hear that, you of little faith, and hear this strong rebuke. Oh, you guys don't understand a thing. You're so foolish. You're worthless for my kingdom purposes. I can't get anything done with these guys. Why did I pick these guys? Just little faith. But he didn't say, you have no faith. He says, you have little faith. Little faith. If you've got a little faith, what is it that you have? You have some faith. Not much, but you've got some. And Jesus is this patient teacher who recognizes just tiny faith, the size of a mustard seed, and he pulls on it. He just keeps pulling on it. He feeds it as much as possible, so it will grow into a great, useful, faithful person for his purposes. So now we can see this contrast. It's not between bitter enemies who hate Jesus and will fight him at every turn, and on the other side, faithful, confident, obedient soldiers for Christ. No, we've got a contrast between no faith and little faith. And now we're ready to make this big turn to Jerusalem, to take these little faith disciples and build them into a beacon of hope for the world. So let's look at verses 13 to 20 and see how this little faith responds. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Boy, this is a a section that's filled with massive implications for how we do a lot of things individually and as a church. And I'm going to leave them all for another time. Maybe come to School of Theology and we'll cover those someday. I want to keep our focus right on the theme of this story, right where Jesus is turning everything, where he says he will build his mission. His mission is to build his following, his assembly on little faith. He contrasts again this. He makes this contrast that we've already seen with a couple of questions, similar questions about his identity. First, he asks the disciples, "Okay, guys, we've been going all over Galilee. Who does everybody say that I am? What are the rumors? They're like, well, something, you're John the Baptist that came back from the dead. That's a little weird. Elijah, there was some kind of prophecy about Elijah coming back. Maybe Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Everyone's really confused, Jesus. They're just not seeing it. And so he asks, well, who do you guys 
y'all, for any Southerners here, say that I am? Peter replies, speaking up for the whole group, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, like he immediately has perfect vision. You are the Christ. I can see it, Jesus. And now this confession is what turns the entire book towards Jerusalem. It's where the conflict finally comes to a head. We have this huge question. Jesus is clearly the king of Israel and everybody else hates him. What's going to happen? So it sets us on a trajectory for the climax right in Jerusalem. In his confession, Peter is essentially saying, Jesus, we're desperate. We need help. I am nobody. I'm nothing. And you are everything the scriptures pointed to. You are the king of Israel who's come to save us. You were sent by God, the living God, who seemed to be quiet for the last 400 years, and now you've come back to give us hope. Hope that all this oppression, all this despair and pain and death we're experiencing will not overcome us. We're so tired, Jesus. We're weak. We need your rescue. All we can do is hope in you. Peter's heart is in the right place of humble dependence. He sees Jesus as the only solution to every one of his problems, even if he doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. He can't explain the details of the Trinity yet or what Messiah means in all its Old Testament implications. He doesn't fully understand what the plan of salvation is, what rescue really looks like. Next week, we're going to see how right away after receiving this great blessing, he already puts his foot in his mouth. So we're left to wonder, why is Jesus using this guy? Peter thinks that the Messiah is just this political conqueror who's going to come and wipe out the Romans and make Israel great again. But he still has simple faith that Jesus is his only hope, even if he's messed up in many ways. And Jesus smiles at this simple faith and he blesses Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There is no room for boasting from Peter. He's he's nobody. He's admitted his own need for a Savior. Sure, he's been the one to follow him. He gave up everything to follow him, but... As we've seen, Peter isn't so bright. He's not so wise. He constantly gets himself into trouble. They stumble. The disciples fall all the time. And the only reason Peter can see anything about who Jesus is was because God revealed it to him. The only reason he even has little faith is because God gave him that little faith. If you're here today and you're enjoying hearing about the Savior. Or the music is played and you have to put your hands up because you're just overwhelmed with His love. Or you enjoy the conversation with other Spirit-filled believers. That delight in you, that sight into this glory is all because God has planted that faith in you. You're not smarter than anyone else. You did not achieve something great on your own to finally find this treasure. God has revealed it to you bit by bit in His patient mercy. He puts up with your foolish ignorance and your sinful stubbornness 
but he gently pulls on that little faith to grow you into something useful for his kingdom. And look what comes with such simple faith. Jesus showers Peter with this incredible responsibility in verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter. His name means rock. And on this rock of Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Are you kidding me? This Peter, this guy who has no clue what he's talking about, gets all of this authority from Jesus. Jesus has been wandering around Galilee everywhere. Heal, 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 bread, 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 everywhere. And now he's giving this authority to Peter, this guy who can't keep his foot out of his mouth. This man of little faith. He gives the keys of the kingdom. Peter's the guy that gets to decide who comes in and who goes out. Now the Catholic Church likes to come along and say, see, there's Peter's the first pope. He's got the keys to the kingdom. And now we have the succession of popes, people over the whole church for the rest of history, who decide who gets to be part of the Catholic Church or not. But I'm just not seeing that there. Yes, Peter is the rock, but he's the foundation. He's not over everything. He's just the first one. Don't lose sight of the main point. This broken, ignorant, foolish, backwoods Galilean fisherman with little faith is the foundation of the church. What? This is just shocking. Jesus' entire mission to save the world is built on this fool. Jesus didn't pick Peter because he had Billy Graham-like influence around the Sea of Galilee. He chose him exactly because he did not. This is how Jesus will get the most glory in this world, using an ordinary man to start an irresistible movement. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, even if it starts with a man like Peter. And so this should be massively encouraging to every one of us here. Because this principle applies not just in the foundation stones, but to everything that's built upon it. Yeah, the Catholic Church says this passage institutes a succession of popes, but and the text says no such thing. It's just silent on that issue. But as we read the rest of the New Testament, we see how the church grows. We follow history. We see that it grows in exactly the same way as this first foundation stone laid down. It does start with an emphasis on Peter. You As we've been studying in Sunday school, we got through the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. And who's the primary character other than the Holy Spirit? It's Peter. He's the guy standing up over and over, defending the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming others to repent. He walks up to the temple and heals people. Peter raises people from the dead. It's like, is this Jesus reincarnated? People wondering, where'd you get all this authority? Other disciples go to Samaria and start preaching the gospel and people are repenting, joining the church. But wait, Peter has to come first and give his approval to show that, yes, this authority continues through Peter, just as Jesus promised. But the succession that we see in the rest of the New Testament isn't from Peter to a succession of popes, but from Peter to Stephen and Philip and Paul, and the whole church, to all of you. I know Mike was hoping I'd go here, but I'm going to stop there. That 
We all have this authority from Christ holding the keys to the kingdom. We are all, Peter writes himself in his own letter, a priesthood of believers. This authority that he has spreads to the whole church and all of us must respond to this command to go out and make disciples of all nations with this authority. And what qualifies you for this call is not your great skill in talking to others, but little faith in Jesus. I've met with some people this week who've expressed hesitation that how could, how could God use me? I'm not going to be any use to the kingdom. Why would anyone want to be in community with a former drug addict, a divorced person, a same-sex attracted man, a, a homemaker, a single person, an immigrant, a former Muslim? Why would people care to follow people like us, to listen to us? Well, who would trust a uneducated, backwoods, Galilean fisherman. But Jesus builds His church on exactly this type of person. An ordinary man with simple little faith in an extraordinary Savior. This is why at Redemption we don't set the bar so high for membership. You have to understand the Trinity and and predestination and complementarianism. And once you grasp all of that, then you can be a member. No, the... To become a member of a church should be a basic understanding of the gospel, a simple confession of salvation in Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians that Jesus, the Son of God, emptied Himself, took on the form of man, was obedient to God to death, death on a cross. And He rose from the dead so that the whole world might confess that Jesus is Lord. He encouraged the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise. No matter how small your faith is, you confess that Jesus is Lord, that you are desperate for Him, and He will pull on that little faith, and He will make you useful for His kingdom. You're not called to be like Peter. He had a unique one-of-a-kind role in church history. But you are called to His same simple faith. Confess that Jesus is Lord, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died and rose from the grave, granting eternal life to all who trust in Him. And then Jesus will pull on that faith. He will feed it and make you more full of His truth so that through us, an ordinary church of ordinary people, God, an extraordinary God, will display His amazing glory. Let's pray. God, who are we? Why would we expect one gathering on a Sunday morning, one simple sermon, one fellowship over a table of potluck food, Why would we expect any of that to bring you glory? We're nothing. And yet, with your Holy Spirit, we have everything. We have power and authority. We have hope and peace. We have comfort and security. We have righteousness. So God, send us out from here totally changed. Grab a hold of our little faith. And make us more faithful. Make us useful for your kingdom. That we would be obedient 
to go into all the earth and proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Amen.